Good evening, everyone. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you here tonight. This is a special day, a special evening for the LSE. We not only have the Amartya Sen lecture, but also the first address, I'm startled to say, by a managing director of the International Monetary Fund to the school. We should have done this more often because having the director of the International Monetary Fund not only brings great wisdom about world affairs, but sunshine and beautiful weather. Thank you. (laughs) This is the third of the Amartya Sen lectures. The first was by Joseph Stiglitz, the second by James Wolfenson. We invite those who have something valuable to say on the issues of economic development, human development, human rights, ethical standards, and public policy. And if they happen to hold institutional positions of great influence in these very matters, that's only partially coincident. I believe that Christine Lagarde covers these issues with full measure, and we look forward very much to hearing from her and welcome her warmly here today. In fact, we welcome her back back even to this very room, because she has made a previous visit to the school when she was the French Minister for Trade and delivered a lecture here in the Old Theater in 2005. It is also a great privilege to have Amartya Sen with us tonight. Many places claim him, but we think that the LSE (laughs) and London have a special claim Professor Sen taught here at the LSE, and he and his work have remained a profound influence on our activities. Much of his extraordinarily influential, creative, and important thought developed in the context of the LSE. I won't say that it developed while he was teaching microeconomics in this very room, but maybe some of it did. Amartya Sen is a towering figure in economics, and also in philosophy and in broader public discussion and throughout the social sciences. Professor Sen, it is a great pleasure to have you with us again. Christine Lagarde. Step on my applause Christine Lagarde has had at least three careers, perhaps four if you count representing France in synchronized swimming. She was an outstanding lawyer with a quarter of a century at a large international law firm, Baker McKenzie, becoming the first female chairman of that company in 1999. This may bear on empowerment. Her second career was as a politician in France, where she held the ministries of trade, and agriculture, and never underestimate the importance of the Ministry of Agriculture in France, (laughs) and then of economic affairs, finance, and employment. She was widely regarded inside and outside of France as simply outstanding. Her third career has been as managing director of the IMF from the summer of 2011. She has made a very powerful impression around the world, not only with the discipline and rigor for which the IMF is famous, but also with her emphasis on pragmatism, flexibility, moral standards, fellow feeling, and good sense. 
Thus, somewhat unusually, it was her IMF that warned that austerity could be overdone and emphasized the dangers of employment, unemployment, particularly... (laughs) Do you have a policy on the dangers of employment? (laughs) She has previously expressed concerns about rising income inequality, its difficulties in its own right, and the risks it might bring. She has spoken out recently on the importance of overcoming poverty in the developing world, particularly in Africa, from which she has just come. She has also emphasized the importance of fostering capabilities in people, particularly for women, and building the capacity of institutions to deliver for the public good. She has been a strong internationalist at a time when the world needs still more of that spirit. It is a great privilege for us all to have her here today and a great honor for the LSE. Madame Lagarde, we welcome you warmly to the LSE. Thank you ever so much for your warm welcome and your words of introduction. Thank you for all being here tonight. And the honor is not yours, it is mine. Uh, I would like to especially thank you, um, Professor Craig Calhoun, for your kind introduction. And I know that you're a great leader at the LSE and was told that this particular podium actually accommodates tall people, so it can move up. But given that you're such a great leader, you're going to help me with trying to move it up a bit. (laughs) Because I have no clue how it works. Oh, does it? It's it's okay. Thank you so much. Ah. No, no. Up. Up. Wonderful. More, 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 more. (laughs) Great, great. Okay. Fantastic. And I'll... I will move it down a bit so we can see each other. Okay? Perfect. (laughs) So we can see each other. Good. All right. No, I'm I'm absolutely delighted to be back uh, with you. As you said, I was was here a few years ago uh, when I was predominantly focusing on trade issues and trying to remove as many barriers as possible uh, in order to encourage trade. And uh, we did not succeed very much, but I was delighted to see that Bali was an improvement from where we had left it, which was uh, not a great success. So delighted to be back at the London School of Economics, that very prestigious uh, school, um, one of the world's most prestigious universities, uh, with alumni including uh, 34 world world leaders and 16 Nobel Prize winners. One of these Nobel Prize winners is, of course, the luminous Amartya Sen, Professor Sen, thank you so much for being here tonight with us. I believe that there are few economists who can actually match your reach from the complex mathematics of social choice to the lofty speculation of moral philosophy, combining deep theoretical rigor with the heartfelt concern for the poor and the marginalized. 
Professor Sen has always understood that the concerns of economics are closely related to the concerns of justice and fairness, and in that you follow in the footsteps of the great economic thinkers of all times. Today, especially in the wake of the global crisis, members of the profession are asking the kinds of questions that you have spent your whole life pondering. Yours was a prophetic voice, and you can rightfully be called the conscience of economics. Now tonight, the topic that I would like to address is at the intersection of justice and economics. It's the issue of empowerment. Empowerment is about economic opportunity, the ability to freely choose one's own path in life in accordance with one's distinctive talents and abilities. It's about cutting away obstacles to true human flourishing. And you will appreciate that in addressing this topic, I indeed speak here as Managing Director of the IMF. And I want to address this topic uh, from three distinct layers of empowerment. First, I would like to uh, talk about the empowerment of the individual and what that means for economic policies in particular. Second, I would like to uh, address what is needed to help individual empowerment by talking about the empowerment of institutions. And I will touch on education in that respect. And third, I would like to talk about what is needed in turn to help national economies and their institutions to flourish, and I will address the empowerment of multilateralism. So let me begin with individual empowerment. Now, there are multiple obstacles to individual empowerment, and I could talk about any of those, but I would like to focus on two obstacles to empowerment. One is the obstacle based on income disparities and rising so, and obstacles based on gender disparities. So starting with income disparities. Across the board, the gap between the haves and the have-nots has risen substantially in recent years. In many countries, the wealthy are taking home a greater share of the rewards today than at any time in the post-war era. So we might have avoided the second Great Depression, and that is good, but we have not avoided a second Gilded Age. And while regions like Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa are making great economic progress, I will touch on that later, their momentum is still being held back by the stumbling block of rising inequality. You could argue about that on Latin America, but I still maintain Now, I think that I know what Professor Sen would say about this. He would argue that we should look look beyond inequality, and we should worry about what is at the roots of those inequality, and we should worry about a wider set of disparities, such as health, such as education, such as unemployment, such as social exclusion. And that's an extremely important point. Indeed, Professor Sen's contribution here is truly groundbreaking. For some decades now, he has developed an approach to inequality that is based less on income 
and more on capability. This approach judges people's advantage by their capability to do the things that they value. It's about opportunity, about giving a person the means to live well, to achieve their potential. Yet I would argue that there is an intimate connection between the modern incarnation of inequality and these broader notions of opportunity. In more unequal societies, too many people lack the basic tools to get ahead. Decent nutrition, health care, education, skills, access to credit. This can create a vicious cycle whereby economic insecurity causes people to invest too little in skills and education. As the Bank of England's Andrew Holden put it, being poor taxes the mind every bit as much as the wallet. In more unequal societies, we also find lower levels of contentment and less mobility across generations. The end result is that excessive inequality can hinder individual empowerment, and not surprisingly, it also hinders sustainable economic growth. This is certainly something that we have found at recent IMF research that we have conducted recently. And this is why I believe that policies to tame excessive income inequality can be win-win if they are carefully chosen and well calibrated. They can spur empowerment and economic advancement. Think of policies like boosting spending on health, on education, active labour market policies and in-work benefits. And I have deliberately avoided the redistributive policies that can be a lot more controversial. But on those ones, I really believe that there is hardly any controversy to be had. Now let me say a word here on education, which remains a uniquely powerful agent of empowerment. In a world of stark inequality, we need to make education accessible to all. Now, at the IMF, we're trying to join this movement. In conjunction with a not-for-profit partner, which brings quite a few universities together, actually, we have developed an online learning program for government officials and have now opened it up to the general public, too. Now, why do we do that and why is it important? Because a lot of the training and technical assistance that we provide is actually quite costly to governments. They have to send their officials. They have to pay for their return trips. They have to finance their absence as well. Whereas the online system that we've put together becomes a lot more accessible, a lot cheaper, and a lot more widely open to those who are prepared to put the effort in. And I have to say that the rewards that we are getting in terms of completion of courses is actually mind-boggling. Now, there's massive open online courses, otherwise well-known as MOOC, clearly enhanced knowledge and skills in areas where the IMF is active, and thus empower people to better understand and engage with the economic policies and decisions that affect their life. Now, in doing that, we take a risk because we're prepared to open up, to share knowledge. And when I found out lately that 600 civil servants had taken the debt sustainability analysis course, 
we take a risk of having them come back to us and say, well, we actually disagree with your calculation of the DSA, and we have other views. But it's precisely opening that debate and being prepared to share the information, which, act, which will actually enhance that empowerment and give them more responsibility and to us more accountability as well. Now let me turn to the second obstacle to empowerment that I want to touch on tonight, and that's the gender disparities. It's an issue that is close to uh, my heart, and I'm sure to many people's heart here. I know to you, Professor Sens. Globally, globally, women earn three quarters as much as men for the same position, the same job, the same title, the same background. They are underrepresented in the formal sector and overrepresented in the informal sector. They spend twice as much time on household calls as men and four times as much as on childcare. They make up 70% of the billion people living on less than a dollar a day and they are the first one to be submerged by economic crisis. Women are, are also locked out of leadership positions where gender seems to matter a lot more than qualifications. And when they do access those positions, they're much more likely to be fired. So the bottom line is that women are underutilized, underpaid, underappreciated, and overexploited. And what's more, their real contribution to the economy is often just unaccounted for. Okay? <laughs> Not great, huh? So, it needs to change. And some people can debate forever whether it's a matter of justice or morality, and I'm not even going to touch on those two. It's also a matter of basic economics. Professor Sen played a pioneering, pioneering, pioneering role in raising awareness in this area, drawing attention to the scandal of missing women. Women who would likely be alive today if only they had been born as male. They're missing because of too much neglect and too little respect, including poor nutrition and hardly any health care. Now, some estimates suggest that there are more missing women in the world today than all men killed in all the wars of the 20th century combined. Think about it. Startling and shocking. Now, the solution, as Professor Sen has long argued, is to increase women's voice and agency through their independence and their empowerment. Now, what does this mean in practice? It means focusing on education, not only education, ownership rights. There are so many countries in the world where women have no access to ownership, where they do not inherit, and they cannot have collaterals available in order to get access to finance. Focusing on employment opportunities outside the home. So once again, empowerment boils down to education. And women educations showers benefits on society as a whole. The evidence suggests that women are more altruistic, 
One study found out that actually women spend 90% of their earnings on health and education, as opposed to just about 30 to 40% for men. Please, men, do not feel bad. It's okay. <laughs> now, the same is true for women's economic participation, because women are ultimately the agents of aggregate demand, accounting for 70% of global consumer spending. Now, you'd be surprised if you ask the chairman of GM, the chairman of Renault, the chairman of any car manufacturers, if you ask any manufacturer of computers and ask them who are the decision makers when it comes to buying, they know because they have access to the information and the data, and whether it's big data or otherwise, they will tell you 70% 70, 70 of the decisions are made by women. In addition to all that, eliminating gender gaps in labor force participation can lead to big jump in income per capita, especially in regions like MENA, Middle East, North Africa. The income per capita could increase by about 27%. Or Southeast Asia, where we believe, based on the study we've done, that the income per capita could increase by 23%. So that's why the IMF has recently recommended very strongly to both Korea and Japan to put in place policies in order to boost women's participation. Because in those countries, not only are women not visible enough and not participating enough, but there is a clear issue of labor participation in those economies. So fundamentally, take these two obstacles into account there are no shortcuts to a vibrant economy. It must be built from the bottom up, from the empowerment of every single individual and removing those obstacles through good policies. Which brings me to my second issue, which is empowering institutions. Because as people strive to achieve their potential, to remove barriers and obstacles, they don't do that in a vacuum. They are navigating the dense of thicket of institutions and governance structures that run through the economy. And these institutions matter. They can either help or hinder. Good institutions are founded on the three principles of accountability, transparency, and impartiality. They facilitate empowerment by letting, letting success depend on competence rather than connection, on participation rather than patronage, by offering an open hand rather than a closed fist. Now, this evening, I would like to just refer to a narrow subset of institutions, the ones that contribute directly to economic well-being by providing strong frameworks for fiscal policy, monetary policy, and financial sector oversight. This is the realm of the IMF. That's, what we, that's you know, our core business, if you will. Without good institutions in these areas, without capable people behind them, policies will be ineffective and avenues for empowerment will be blocked. To use Professor Sen's language, if we want better capability, we also need better capacity. So let me talk a little bit about my shop in that respect, the IMF. What do we do in terms of capacity? You probably have heard that the mandate of the IMF 
is for global economic and financial stability. What maybe you don't know is that the fastest, the fastest growing part of our business is actually capacity building, providing technical assistance and training to our member states by helping countries design, build and strengthen their institutions. Through that technical assistance and training, we act as a global conduit for the sharing of knowledge and know-how. So we help countries just help themselves. What does that mean in terms of commitment? We devote a quarter of our budget to capacity building. And since 2008, in other words, during the financial crisis, we have provided training to most of our 188 members and technical assistance to 90% of them. Low-income countries and middle-income countries receive two-thirds of our technical assistance and half of our training. Our special focus is on the building blocks of macroeconomic stability, areas like improving the tax systems, better management of public funds, strengthening the financial sector oversight, and enhancing the quality of economic statistics. <clears throat> We're not the only one doing it. Our sister institution across the street, the World Bank, is also doing, doing it, other institutions as well. And it is generous donor funding that actually helps us go even beyond this quarter of our budget that I have mentioned. But rather than talking in general terms that are a little bit, you know, esoteric at this time of the day on a Friday afternoon, I'm going to give you a, a few country examples of the work that we're doing in that respect. Let me begin with Myanmar. How many of you have been to Myanmar? Phew, that's pretty big. Who is from Myanmar? Not yet. <laughs> well, Myanmar is our third largest recipient of technical assistance. And Myanmar, for those who have visited it, is really awakening from 50 years of isolation and decades of drift and insularity where learning was very limited universities were neutered, and travel was restricted. So until recently, the economy was very poorly integrated into the wider world. As an example, the central bank was part of the Ministry of Finance. It's great for an independent central bank. <laughs> the budget process was antiquated, and the keeping of data was done manually. Now, together with other donors, we joined hands with Myanmar and helped the country take those crucial steps, setting up a truly independent central bank, removing exchange restrictions and establishing a functioning foreign ex exchange market. And we're now moving you know, one step further, providing assistance in core areas like tax administration, financial sector oversight, and economic statistics. And we do that by being on the ground and providing on the ground capacity building and training. We are helping Myanmar not only awakening, but humming with energy and vigor. And I saw this firsthand. I was there back in December. And everybody there, I 
spoke to, including Aung San Suu Kyi, all of them said, let us not rush into development because everybody is flocking there, trying to take advantage. You know, it's fantastic, new market, new adventure. Well, all of them on the ground said, not too fast. We need to develop and build those capacity that will help us monitor our development and take our destiny into our hands, not somebody else's hands. We're working in that country in the field of helping them collecting tax. That's not very well known about the IMF. People think about, you know, programs. No, we're also helping them to raise money for essential services that they need so badly in health, in education, in infrastructure. And they know that they need to build a strong financial sector so that people can be empowered and have access to credit, including women in the rural areas. Now, I focused on Myanmar because we are providing the whole set of technical assistance and training that we have available. And they are, as I said, the third recipients of our efforts. But I could give you a few other examples quickly. Cambodia, uh, where we are helping to put in place a legal framework to restore trust in the financial system. One of the many sometimes horrible legacies of the Khmer Rouge terror was the complete breakdown of the banking system. So Cambodian people did not put money in the bank. They put money under their mattress when they could keep it. Ten years ago, there was hardly any bank in Cambodia. Now they're commonplace and they're being used. We can look at Kosovo, which not so long ago gained its independence and emerged from conflict. And in a short period of time, it also made remarkable progress in building the foundation of a modern market economy. With hands-on technical assistance from us and training, Kosovo created a brand central bank from scratch. And now from receiving technical assistance from us, they're now participating in helping others build central banks with the nuts and bolts of monetary policy as well. I could mention Peru as one of the world's fastest growing economy. Peru was losing pretty much a fifth of its to-be-collected tax revenue because of tax avoidance and various schemes. Well, with our assistance, it has now strengthened tax collections and the management of public finance. And what does that mean? It means that they can spend more money on Juntos, which is that social program, which is a conditional cash transfer program that makes sure that poor children get access to health care and education, and which are the conditions for the parents to actually access the cash transfers. I could mention the Arab countries in transition, which are in very serious need of empowered institutions. I remind you, empowered institutions, to me, mean accountability, transparency, and non-discrimination. And they need a lot of help. Tax policies, uh, financial sector reform, monetary policy, capital markets, statistics, you just name it. And we are doing that on the ground. And let me give you as a final example um, what we're trying to do in some sub-Saharan Africa countries. You mentioned uh, that I was uh, just a few days ago in Mozambique where we had a 
big conference bringing all of the authorities from sub-Saharan Africa in Maputo on the theme Africa rising, but also Africa watching. Many African countries are blessed with a bounty of natural resources. But as those working on such issues, the management of natural resources is absolutely vital. And natural resources can either be a blessing if they're well managed or a curse if they're wasted. This was the key theme of the conference, actually, and we are providing technical assistance to countries like Kenya, Mozambique, Tanzania, and much of our hands-on uh, delivery of services is provided by our technical training centers on the ground in Africa. We have one in Gabon, one in Ghana, one in Tanzania, one in Côte d'Ivoire, and one in Mauritius in order to cover as much of sub-Saharan Africa as we can. So this is just to give you a flavor of what we do on the ground to actually help providing, building, developing, and securing empowered institutions in that field of uh, the fiscal framework and financial institutions that are referred to. But as the global economy becomes ever more intricate and interconnected, institutions too, and the people behind, will need to keep up with these changes. So we need to continuously help empowering those institutions across the entire spectrum of our membership. Which brings me to my third area this evening, the empowerment of multilateralism. In a very basic way, today's challenges are increasingly global challenges. The institutions that I've referred to in my previous discussion were predominantly national institutions. But the global challenges that we are facing will not only be dealt with by national institutions. And I know that this vision resonates probably at the LSE, which truly has a global reach and which you represent with a lot of globality about your group, I have to say, from my vantage point. We live in a world that is simultaneously coming together and drifting further apart. What do I mean by that? Coming together due to the dense and intricate web of interconnections that run through our global economy. Whether you look at trade, whether you look at finance, whether you look at technology, whether you look at communication, it's brought together. Coming apart as well, due to the increasing diffusion of power across the world towards more diverse geographical regions, more diverse global stakeholders, with the development of this disenfranchisement from the global reach and approach, and from this somehow, sometimes, tribal attitude that people have about those issues. And if we're not careful, this tension between integration and fragmentation could lead to indecision, impasse, and insecurity. And it is certainly made more difficult in times of crisis, wherever you look. At the same time, as I said, the global economy is facing huge threats to sustainability. Threats that affect us all, that happily ignore barriers, borders, walls. Think about the huge demographic shifts 
the perils of climate change, the strains of rising inequality, the development of fragile states, sometimes at our borders. Problems of that magnitude cannot be solved by homegrown solutions or provincial mindsets. They require a sense of common purpose and common citizenship. They require a reinvigorated sense of multilateralism. Now, once again, Professor Sen has a lot to say about this. He has argued that we must recognize the responsibilities that come with our shared humanity. As he puts it, to argue that we do not really owe anything to others who are not in our neighborhood would make the limits of our obligations very narrow indeed. And this is the peril of our modern economy. If we hunker down behind closed doors, if we build walls, if we erect barriers and borders, we only build obstacles to opportunity, obstacles to empowerment. In other words, if enhancing capability means enhancing capacity, it also requires enhancing cooperation. As Charles Dickens once said, the men who learn endurance are they who call the whole world brother. Now this is another area where I believe that the IMF can play a crucial role. And indeed we have been playing that crucial role for the last 70 years as a fruit of that visionary post-war multilateral moment when nations put the global good above their narrow interests, taking the bet that the blessings of cooperation would disperse far and wide. This is a bet that has always paid off. I've talked already about the role that the IMF can play in helping countries build capacity. It also plays a key role as a global convener of cooperation, bringing together 188 countries to share knowledge, to collaborate towards common ends, to lend a helping hand to one another in times of needs. That's very much part of our mission as well. There are lots of rumblings and thinking and plotting about new collaborative ways, new tools, new instruments. Well, I would contend that the instruments of collaboration developed during those formative years have stood the test of time quite well. They should be preserved and protected. That requires bringing institutions like the IMF up to date, represent better representatives of the evolution of society of the different role played by economic powers around the world. We're working on that, but it is not yet mission accomplished. We also need to go further towards what I uh, have called the new multilateralism of the 21st century. This new multilateralism which must engage emerging market economies, developing market economy countries, but also a wider community. Expanding networks and coalitions that are now deeply embedded in the fabric of the global economy. We need to invest in this kind of global society, of global social capital that exists. We need to develop the idea of global civil society, one that provides space for all voices, takes a broad global perspective and adopts a genuine long-term vision, a vision that I guess would make you, Professor Sen, proud. 
And with such a framework, I do believe that international, the international community can unblock obstacles and unlock opportunities. You will be the actors, you are the actors of that new community, which functions differently, which dialogues differently, which entrusts differently. And we need to understand that and reach out to that level of dialogue, cooperation, and trust. So let me conclude with, I've mentioned Charles Dick. I'm trying to borrow from English literature here. I hope you realize that. <laughs> so I'm trying to conclude with another um, British um, author, Charlotte Bronte. She said, Liberty lends us her wings and hope guides us by her star. It's beautiful. But it's really what economic empowerment is about. Freedom, dignity, opportunity, expectations. So we must do whatever we can to help people help themselves, to let people lift themselves up through enabling, enabling policies, enabling institutions, enabling modes of new international cooperation. If we'll sail in that direction, we could do worse than ask Professor Sen to guide us. After all, he's been sailing these waters for decades now. He knows them well, and he has been the one thinking about solutions long before most of us have just begun to see the problems and recognize them. Thank you very much. Your applause makes clear that you join me in recognizing both a great speech and a great global leader. Thank you. And thank you also for being willing to entertain some questions. So, members of the audience, do you have questions? I can see one right there. Good. Okay. I guess you have to wait until a microphone Mike, exactly. gets wait closer to you. Wait for a microphone from and a then you can a red shirt. Say your name and uh, what you study or what your interest, whatever. Thank you. She's good at this. <laughs> I can be reinvited. Eh? Well, um, my name is Sana Musharraf. I am originally from Pakistan, but had an opportunity to be in Japan for a an year, and then now England, which are developed. So, from developing to a developed country, um, I would like to thank you for sharing your vision and at the same time seeing your persona. Uh, but I would like you to excuse my impertinence a bit because. Uh, what, what you define empowerment, it seems to be an oxymoron to me right now. And I will put forth my query. Um, we are taught at the LSC, um, being a student of law and accounting, um, it's very, regulation is very contextual. However, when you spoke of bringing about changes globally, you said that the IMF would want transparency, and accountability and non-discrimination. But due to cultural sensitivities, what works in one situation may not be superimposed on another. This is part of my query. And the other one being, in Pakistan I've witnessed that the forex swings 
and thereby impact the export growth or the economic development just because IMF decides whether or not to inject the funds in the economy or give another loan or a tranche. I am just curious to learn that what about the political role of the IMF in stabilizing regional growth and development because economic empowerment cannot be segregated from political uh, stability. But your institution's role in helping induce more stability. Thank you. Okay. Sh one question at a time or several? That was a long question. Why don't you go ahead okay. and take that one? Okay. <laughs> on on your, your, your first point, which is really, um, you know, sort of the fact that I give a, a rather... Um, normative definition of what I regard as uh, empowered institutions. I take your point, and I agree with you on one issue, which is that there is no one-size-fits-all. That is absolutely right. But I would probably argue with you um, that transparency could pretty much apply as a principle. I'm not suggesting that the translation of transparency into the way in which institutions are set up, organized, monitored, and reported to would be the same across the board, whether you're in Pakistan, in Tokyo, or in the UK. But I would contend that transparency as a matter of principle uh, is one that could uh, apply across the board and would probably yield results in their, def in their respective um, incarnation, depending on the culture, depending on the development, depending on the demographics, depending on the political situation, on the religion uh, uh, in, in, in that country. I would also probably dispute that um, accountability, whatever form it takes, is also probably one of the necessary attributes of empowered institutions. Uh, it would take different forms, but a non-accountable institution, wherever it is located, you know, think of Pakistan, think of Japan, think of the UK, an unaccountable institution uh, would, in my view, not work to actually empower and help the empowerment of individuals. Difficult to um, access and a long way away for some, but as a, at least as you know, an aspiration, I think it, it's, it's important. Uh, Non-discrimination, I agree that in, at different stages of development, it's more an aspiration than a fact and a principle that is applied. I, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm the first one to recognize that the one-size-fits-all simply is off. Um, you know, we've seen it in, in all sorts of, of ways, including in, you know, in fiscal policies, for instance, including in... Um, you know, the capacity building that, that we do, it's, it's not a one-size fits all. It has to be country specific, which is why I think there is, you know, there is an, a richness that we bring to the table if we, as an institution, we recognize that we have 188 best practices around, or rather 188 practices available that can be compared, uh, rated uh, one against the other for the membership of the institution to decide what they can use best in order to progress in the direction of these three, uh, in my view, cardinal principles. Now, political stability. You know, the intersection of 
the economic support, um, the fiscal and monetary recommendations that we often discuss with governments, particularly in the scope of a program, uh, clearly, um, how would I put it, has not necessarily political stability, but political ownership as a prerequisite. There are a few examples that I will not mention specifically, but of countries that have had the need of IMF support, but where the political team empowered at that particular time was not willing to take ownership of the decisions to be made, was not prepared to um, entertain the relationship and be open and public about it. I'm talking about the relationship with the IMF. Well, in those situations, we said terribly sorry, but we are not in that relationship. Because for us, for the reforms, for the policy mix recommendations that we give, to be successful will require political ownership. Because, you know, it's, it's not, you know, the IMF decides that or the IMF prescribes that. It's a government, a country, that takes ownership of its future and after having discussed and debated the pertinence of our recommendations and sometimes modified them in agreement with us, will then drive the bus and uh, conduct the reform. Shall we do a man, a woman, a man, a why woman? Don't you, and why don't you take <laughs> one of each? Okay. All right, you go. And then Madam there. So this gentleman right in the middle. You know, sometimes I say that, one man, one woman. Boy, it's really hard because there's so few women. The round of questions is short. But here, no. I'll, I'll, I'll stick to being a man for now. Um, Constantine <laughs> Gontikas from, from Greece, uh, one of your livelier clients over the last few years. Um, um, you make a very compelling case for multilateralism and yet, just taking the example of the last two weeks, I mean, Europe's voters on the ground, across the board, seem to have made it a matter of honor to reject multilateralism. Um, can you please comment on two things? One, the increasing disconnect between the sentiment on the ground of those voters and the leadership of the multilateral institution that you've just alluded to. And secondly, the danger going forward that national leaders are going to be elected for their ability to punish or disempower some of these multilateral um, institutions that you've been referring to and the effect of that. I mean, I don't know if I'm being a bit too no, much, but, but that seems to be the way it's heading. I'm going to pass the microphone back two rows. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Would you like another question now? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, Vivina Berla, I'm part of the governance of the LSE as well as during my day job, uh, private equity investing in developing countries for growth. And my question actually is, I wonder whether you can comment on the relative, um, I suppose, efficacy of grant aid technical assistance versus investment approach in these countries and these economies. Hmm. Another one we we'll take? Gentleman there. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm from China. I'm now doing Master of Law degree in LSE. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, 
many example you mentioned is basically uh, some kind, very small country, I think, because I didn't know what 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 it is uh, before. Uh, but I'm thinking, uh, you, I, I'm agree that many current issues in international today could only solve, be solved in a global framework. But the question is, I just said there's a political issue, and you know, for example, in China, um, I, I think I am the relationship between China and IMF is not very friendly. No, don't you? <laughs> is it? Uh, no, that, that, that's because uh, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Um, that. That's because, yeah, you, you know, um, from what I know, just an example from Greek, IMF greatly into sorry, greatly in, intervention uh, in, in 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 its economic, and yeah, it's okay. We sorry, can hear we you. Hear um, yeah. So 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 what I mean is that I think for many big uh, emerging country. Especially in China or, or, or India or, or Brazil, um, their participation in the, in in a Western world lead uh, in the Western okay. world. Yeah, yeah, I I I, yeah. I, I, I know mean, exactly what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah. If your lectures in China, I think that would be more helpful for your empowerment uh, ob- objective. Yeah, so 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 yeah, IMF. What what IMF could do with those countries? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Um, you're asking a, a very, uh, a very difficult and, and deep question, of which, for which I, I'm not sure that I have the answer, and I'm not sure that any of us has the answer. Um, and you know, I, it's not for me, in my capacity, um, to analyse the, the why and the, um, the depth of the meeting that was sent a couple of weeks ago on the occasion of the European elections. I have my own private view about it, but it's not for me to share them. Um, but the point I made about this sort of new multilateralism is also addressing that. Um, and I'm not suggesting that I have or that we have all the answers. But certainly what I see is that when we, do the, when we reach out, uh, as we do to non-governmental organizations, to civil society, when we communicate on a different plateau using completely different media, social media in particular, we reach out to a much broader audience and one that has a different appetite, that has different demands, and uh, which ex- of which expectations is, is of a different kind. And I think that we, we, we need to collectively invent and, and you know, reinvent a new, I don't like the word paradigm because it's overused and inflated, but this new dialogue, new way of representing which clearly is either running out of shelf life uh, or has not been put to good use recently. But I don't think that we should read any of what has happened as a condemnation of multilateralism. Um, Equally, I think that some of those big multilateral issues... um, I mean, Nick Stern is with us, and he's dealing with uh, climate change together with um, a lot of goodwill people, uh, and the IMF is participating in that initiative as well that will see fruit in, on September the 16th in, in New York. 
You see, climate change, climate change is a matter that needs to be addressed at the global level. But it can and should also be addressed at the national and at the individual level. And we will soon be publishing a book which will be about price setting. Do we set the right price? And it's a really fascinating study of how by setting the right price you can actually have a very serious impact on your environment at the national level. So you don't necessarily have to wait until the UNCCC process reaches completion and you know, generates into a huge fund or objectives that will be adhered to or sanctions that will be applied. Things can move also at the national and at the individual levels. And it's the combination of those efforts that can actually aggregate it, produce enough of a momentum that will push global solutions. If everything works in parallel, that's even better. But assume for a moment that that global process takes more time, it's just harder, and that the voices of Nick and a few others are not loud enough, which I'm sure they will be, but assume that they were not. It will still be necessary and it can be done at the national, at the individual level. And I believe that this new dialogue or this new paradigm will actually push those, those issues uh, further. I hope I'm as obscure as you were. <laughs> Christine? Sure. But I think we've connected. Shall we, we invite Amartya to the stage? Oh, to, yes, absolutely. I think we should invite Amartya Sen to the stage. He's figured so much in this conversation. Amartya? Good. Thank you all for applauding and persuading him. He was being bashful. I must say, I was so much enjoying the obituary quality of the meeting. And a you great, can only improve it. A great sense of having an afterlife and listening to a talk when you were being especially kind. If I, if I came up, it mainly to say how grateful I am. I appreciate it. It was a brilliant lecture, of course. That's not a surprise. I've been a great admirer of Christine for a very long time and uh, had the opportunity of seeing her regularly when some of us, including uh, Nick here, were trying to work for the Sarkozy uh, Appointed Commission, yeah. you might remember. And it was really absolutely brilliant what you said, but the, particularly the fact that you emphasized education and um, inequality, including income inequality, as well as institutional building. And in the context of gender inequality, it's probably worth mentioning because it was work done at LSE, mainly by Jean Dres when he was here, that um, the, you referred to the issue of uh, neglect of girl children and so on. The, the, the two factors that make a big difference to the treatment of girls, uh, discrimination 
against God going down and disappearing. Uh, in fact, um, women's literacy, one, women's gainful employment is another. And the extraordinary thing is that, uh, this is actually a conclusion emerging here, that all the other things, including the thing that Guy Becker, my friend, about recently gone, um, like uh, in, its impact on the impact of these two factors and fertility is much higher than the factor that people like Gary Becker and their population theory emphasize. In fact, there was no factor other than women's education and women's gainful employment, which is significantly related to fertility, yeah. as well as non-neglect of children generally and non-neglect of um, uh, children uh, um, uh, female children in particular. So I think I must say, both in terms of the range and the reach of your talk, and I was uh, extraordinarily uh, impressed. There is one point I'm going to make, oh, if please. I may. <laughs> <laughs> uh, greatly, I mean, I grew up at, in Burma as a child. From ages three to six and a half, I was there. All my earliest memories as a Burma. So much so, I don't even call it Myanmar. No. Yeah. That in terms of what the IMF and what under your leadership is doing, it's absolutely fabulous. I've been a great supporter of Aung San Suu Kyi and so on. And yet there is a question in today's Burma, and that relates to the theme of your talk. It's an equality question. Namely, there's a whole group of people called Rohingyas yes. who do not get the education, the, the attention, that uh, they should get. And the story that they somehow moved into Burma uh, is not true. I mean, that had been part of British uh, undefined Indian mm -hmm. Empire. And when the border was drawn, that bit fell on the Burmese side. It's not so much that the Rohingyas moved to Burma, but that Burma moved to the Rohingyas. And that's yeah. the story. And I think this is the story in which the military has to come around and I think, and since as a second to none in my admiration for Suchi, I think she has to break her silence. People has to speak up on that. Mm. And IMF could be a very important factor uh, in that. And this is not a point of criticism, but a suggestion that I think we have to think about yeah. because it could, uh, and IMF is almost uniquely powerful in making, making a difference there. So I have done at least one, <laughs> at one critical, not critical of your talk, but critical in terms of how the world is going uh, in that respect. Yeah. So I yeah. just wanted to mention that, but um, I'm very, very, very grateful. <laughs> Thank you. You know, the, yeah. We had two questions um, that I've not addressed, yours and, and um, you as well. I'm not sure that I have the answer to your question because, uh, you know, the cases that I can think of, um, we, we have witnessed and we were told by local authorities that they were happier doing capacity building first before investment would come in. And, uh, you know, if I take the case of uh, Burma slash Myanmar, there was credibly 
a great interest of private investors to come in and contribute to the development, so to speak, uh, but also clearly create space for themselves. And I think the great wisdom of people like Ansan Sushi and a few others was, hang on a minute, let, let us build that capacity that we need, and then we will entertain that investment which is so much needed. So what I've seen, what I've heard in various countries is more, you know, both are needed, but one step at a time and in the right sequence. Now, your question, I, I think I know what you are referring to. Uh, I think I've addressed the global issues, global treatment uh, in my first, uh, in my response earlier on. But first of all, I'd like to reassure you, the IMF has excellent relationship with China. <laughs> excellent. Okay. Good. Um, I was greeted by President Xi um, on several occasions before he was president and since he has been president. And uh, I'm mostly impressed with the focus of he has adopted on certain policies. I'm most impressed with the fight that he has decided against corruption, which will unsettle, which will disrupt the way in, thing, in, the way in which things were done. Um, but he's, he seems to be very decisive and determined uh, to keep up with that. I think what you're alluding to is the frustration by countries like China, like Brazil, like India, with the lack of progress in reforming the IMF by adopting the quota reform that would give emerging market economies a bigger voice, a bigger vote, a bigger share in the institution. And I share that frustration immensely because I think that the credibility of the institution, its relevance in the world in conducting the mission that it was assigned 70 years ago is highly correlated with its good representation of the membership. And we cannot have a good representation of the membership when China has a teeny tiny share of quota and share of voice when it has grown to where it has grown. The same goes for many of the emerging market economies. So I think that's where it is. And for the moment, the big obstacle lies with the United States of America, which is still to ratify the quota reform and is an outlier now in the group of the G20, for instance. The United States is the only country that has not ratified the quota reform. Now, you might say, so what? Well, so what? It's the United States of America. <laughs> and in the institution... It has a veto right, and the ratification and the implementation of the quota reform is subject to a qualified majority of 85%. And the veto right is enjoyed by somebody who has over 15%, and the United States has 17%. So I'm stuck. I hope it comes. As I said, mission not accomplished yet. Okay, there you go. Thank you. I'm Lacey Selig. I'm an international development management master's student here at the LSE. 
Um, my question is regarding uh, corporations and business. You've talked about the different actors involved and the globalized um, world of development and empowerment today and the role of states and the role of major institutions like the IMF. But I'm wondering specifically about uh, this fairly new emergence of corporate giving and corporate social responsibility with major multinational corporations and how we as development practitioners can utilize that intention um, to really create positive change. And just as an example, I'm thinking of you know, the largest corporation in the world, Walmart, and its recent um, intention to give s substantially to women's empowerment and to try and incorporate that in their corporate goals. Thank you. Yep. Okay, we need a man. <laughs> this one right there. Whoops. Yeah, we should, we should and, go. And next we should upstairs, go. yeah. Okay, we'll get to you next. Thank you. Um, <coughs> many people, um, many Scottish people are seeking empowerment through separation. Oh. <laughs> I, was told, I was told the last row was that of journalists, so you must be one. <laughs> So do you support the aim of a separate Scotland? Obviously there's Catalonia. <laughs> Thank and you for your question. Could you tell us some of the impact that you think there might be? You go. Uh, well, you know what? We're going to go upstairs because we haven't been... Uh, okay, a woman and then a man up there. Good evening, ma'am. My name is Tanya Bhardwaj and I'm studying gender at the LSE. How would you respond to the post-colonial criticisms of institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and how they're accused of uh, being uh, agents of modern-day imperialism? And not only are they geographically located in the global north, but they usually uphold uh, Western hegemonic notions of empowerment and progress. How do you respond to a question or accusations like that? Yeah. Did you say Western empowerment concept? Uh, Western hegemonic notions oh, of okay, progress, okay. modernity, empowerment. Okay, and then just behind, at the, at the, at the back, a gentleman. You have to decide, but yeah. you have to decide between you, the two. You are empowered to choose who yeah, gets the mic. <laughs> Hi, my name's Alex. I'm from Poland, uh, studying international development at the LSE. I just wanted to build on, on your response um, about the quotas. Do you think it's appropriate for one state to have a veto power in the IMF? Okay. All right. Um, corporation, uh, corporate social responsibility, inclusive capitalism, all of that. Um, one might be suspicious about... The overall purpose, is it a pretext, is it an excuse to actually pursue uh, the actual um, shareholder's interest, even if it was? Make full use of it. That's what I would say. And when I hear um, Goldman Sachs, for instance, um, decide that it's going to go for the 1,000 women entrepreneurs to help them and support them, I say, fine, go with it. Now... Does it mean that we bless and uh, support and agree with everything else that is being done by any of these uh, large corporate accounts? No. And it should certainly not be an excuse for uh, 
proper behavior, um, paying tax where they should pay tax, not evading it, and uh, respecting uh, the basic principles, including from the ILO. But if there is that willingness, yeah, I think development experts like you should take full benefit of it. Uh, Scotland, I hope you don't mind if I completely discount and ignore your question. <laughs> with all due respect, with all due respect to Scotland. Um, now, you had an interesting question about this post-colonial uh, alleged hegemony of the West. I have to say that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a... It's something that I cannot reconcile with the work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, with the, the staff that we have, which comes from all over the world, with the diversity of the board that includes all countries' members of the IMF, and there are 188 of them. Now, you could argue that having a European as a managing director of the IMF is um, a remain of colonial times. You might argue that because that institution is currently headquartered in Washington, it's a remain of the colonial times. I don't think that it's, you know, a fate that the IMF will be managed by a European. I think it's a good thing that it is managed by a woman for the first time. And it so happens that... But it so happens that in their wisdom, uh, the founding fathers of the IMF, and there were only about 44 of them at the time, decided that the institution would be headquartered in the country which had the biggest share of the quota, which shipped in the biggest amount and contributed most. And that is still today the United States. But the way things are going... I wouldn't be surprised if one of these days the IMF was headquartered in Beijing, for instance. It would be the articles of the IMF that would dictate it. But what I can assure you of is that, you know, in terms of hiring, in terms of uh, voices, in terms of respect, we are a, a truly multilateral uh, institution open to all the winds of different cultures, different educations, and uh, the range of schools from which we recruit is expanding uh, significantly, and I hope will continue to expand. We do recruit from the LSE, by the way, quite a bit. And a good thing, too. <laughs> uh, last question was on... Um, what was it? Oh, the fact that they, they, why should there be a veto? Um, again, it's, it's, it was embedded in the articles at the time when these institutions were set up, whether it's the World Bank or the, or the IMF. And here you're talking about you know, a political um, stand that was taken at the time because there was enough negotiation, enough bargaining, and one superpower that could actually um, organize itself to that effect. But I, I will tell you something. Um, I see great value in having a, a weighted vote system where it doesn't work as a one country, one vote. And 
I think that there are not many, many institutions that um, are organized in that fashion. I remember the very difficult debates that we were having at the WTO in order to complete the Doha development round, where at the last hour, when you think that you've really mastered all the very, very difficult issues, you suddenly have, I, I was going to say a banana issue, but that was a big issue, uh, but a teeny tiny problem for a, from a very small island, which is a big problem for it, but which can actually block the system because decisions have to be made unanimously. So I think having a not necessarily unanimous voting system and having a weighted voting system has actually served the, the, uh, the IMF quite well over the years. Okay. Do you want to pick the next bunch? Okay, three more. Um, this you? will be the last group, I'm afraid. Hello. Well, good uh, to you there. Yeah. Um, I'm a student here at LSE. I'm doing government and economics. I was born in Russia, but my family is from Ukraine. And um, my question is about the $17 billion bailout. It seems that it has empowered the opposition. It seems that it has divided the country. And some people see it as controversial because Ukraine could turn either to Russia or Hold it close. to the West uh, for the foreign aid. How would you comment on this? It was $17.3 billion um, program. I wouldn't call it a bailout. Um, it, it's, it's a program that had been under negotiations for months and months and months. And which had not been concluded under Yanukovych uh, regime because there were two key issues that he and his uh, advisors did not agree on. One was the necessary depreciation of the currency that was artificially pegged and that was really hurting the economy and operating as an obstacle to its development. And and which eventually happened no matter what. I mean, ha even if we had not been involved, it did happen, and the, uh, the currency devaluated by, you know, something like 30%, then regained a little bit, but it's, it's, it's pretty much uh, where it should be, we believe. And the second issue was the issue of um, the massive public spending on universal subsidies for oil and gas in particular, uh, which... I think has caused, and you might know more than I do because if you, have, if you still have Ukrainian families and relatives, but which has caused, based on numbers that we can analyze, that country to be probably the highest consumer of gas, um, probably as a result of the fact that gas was dirt cheap because of the subsidies that were paid, as I said, universally. So, but... It had been under, under discussions for a long time, and the economic advisors knew that things had to be done. We just couldn't agree on these two items. So once uh, President Yanukovych um, had left and um, the current prime minister was, was empowered, we were in a position to actually discuss, put in place the program, and we did as, as much as we could, as quickly as we can, in order to support the country so that it could restore its, its financing. It... it Otherwise, it would not have been able to finance itself. And when we do that, we do not come as the West, or we do not come as the Europeans. We come as the IMF. And Ukraine was part of the discussion at the IMF. And all Europeans and 
I mean, all countries supported that program. Okay? So it, it's not as if it was a dividing issue. It was a, a corralling uh, program which was very, very strongly supported. And I do hope that it helps the country. And I do hope that it focuses people on restoring the stability of the economy of Ukraine. It will not be sufficient, and there are lots of other issues that have to be addressed, um, where the IMF is, has no competence. All we can do is help with the stability of the economy. And, uh, but I think it's important that we can actually do that. I'm sorry because I dealt with your question right away and did not call on the other question, and I know you're waiting up there. Hi, my name is uh, Nitin Sook. I'm studying environment and development at the LSE. I'm really glad that you talked about climate change, and it's obviously one of the biggest systemic risks that's, uh, that we're all going to face down the line. And on the you know, topic of empowerment, it's a fact that it's going to be the global poor in the global south that will suffer disproportionately from the effects of climate change. I would like to know what kind of technical assistance would the IMF provide to not only developing countries but developed countries uh, to ensure, and this is in the run-up to Paris next year, to ensure that there is this positive image of multilateralism um, that you were talking about tonight. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take your question right away. Um, there are two areas where we naturally can help. And I'm saying naturally because not everybody is happy that the IMF is looking at climate change as a relevant and key issue, and I think that we should. But it's not really, it doesn't ideally suit the core mission uh, of the IMF. It does relate to our core mission, where we can actually argue that spending public money and using... Um, revenue to actually pay subsidies <coughs> in a universal way without differentiating either on the kind of resources that are being used and for which subsidies are being used, nor the beneficiaries of subsidies, so universally to the rich and the poor. So we can very legitimately argue that this is not good use of public funds and that that spending should be revised, should be uh, shrunk and redesigned. So we do help in that respect. And we've just recently published a book that studies how 27 member states of the IMF have actually addressed that issue of subsidies and either failed, succeeded, semi-failed, semi-succeeded. And what is, what is the recipe or what are some of the attributes of a recipe that can make it a success? By protecting uh, the poorest, by protecting the low-income people, making sure that they have an equivalent of the subsidies that they were getting uh, in order to readdress their spending uh, where it's, it's, it's better for both them, public spending, and the environment. So that's perfectly legitimate. Second area where I believe that um, our role is legitimate also is about the how do you set price? How do you value externalities? Uh, when and how do you put in place a carbon tax? Where and how do you use cap and trades? Um, I think that's also perfectly legitimate. Uh, the externalities play a significant role from a macroeconomic point of view, and we can help there as well, without um, stretching out to 
territories that should not belong to us. So I'm okay with that. I think we're reaching the end now, but I want to give Professor Sen the chance to speak again. Oh, are you not going to have any more questions? We are at the end of the questions. Oh, okay. Sadly. <laughs> okay, I'm very sorry. The questions so and the answers that. have both been awfully yeah, good. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I really wanted just to thank you so much for agreeing to give this lecture, to um, coming to my workplace, LSE, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and saying such, gave such a brilliant lecture and, and also personally said such kind things about me, and uh, <laughs> I, I have to be careful, it doesn't go to my head. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I get reminded, one occasion actually about 15 years ago, I was walking home from the other boring conference, going back to the hotel. It was in Hanover in Germany. So I was standing at the traffic light, which was red, but absolutely no car in sight in any direction. I, uh, there was another gentleman standing there. After a little while, I decided to cross. I thought this was really silly. So I crossed, and when the light turned green, this gentleman caught up with me. And he said, Professor Amatya Sen, here in Germany, you have to wait until the light <laughs> turns green. <laughs> so I felt very flattered that he knew me. So I said, um, you know, I spoke to him, I hope affably, and saying, where did we meet before? To which he said, we've never met. I have no idea who you are, but you're wearing your conference bag. <laughs> so I think, I think the ideal conference bag I would like is one saying, friend of Christine Lagarde, I'm out here saying lecture. <laughs> that was my favorite band. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank the audience to remain seated so that uh, Professor Sen and Madame Lagarde are able to leave. Okay. <laughs>